This week on Bomber, after the final explosion, we're tying up loose ends. Brave men and women of the Austin Police Department put their lives on the line tonight. That's what law enforcement does every day in this country. They put their lives on the line to make sure that all of us are safe. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. I'm the executive producer for Bomber. And this week, we wanted to tackle a few aspects of the story that we haven't discussed yet. Bomber host Jason Puckett joins me this week, as well as Tim Ryan. He's the news director at KVU in Austin, Texas. I want to start with Jason. If you've listened to the podcast, you know that Jason was a reporter at KVU in Austin when the bombings took place. Jason, I want to say, first of all, thanks for being part of the project and bringing your personal experience of Austin in March of last year to our listeners. Yeah, it was it was a huge honor. I appreciate you guys involving me. It was uh honestly an emotional experience to go back through the whole thing again uh, literally a year later and and think through it all and hear from everybody again it, it's kind of brought up the fact that you kind of breeze through it as you're a reporter and kind of just internalize it and don't often take the time to go back and, and going through it again was was really meaningful I wanted to just to say on that emotional side of things I have to say maybe not so much emotion more like fear and anxiety but as the producer behind the scenes um, interviewing reporters and investigators and listening to all that audio, you know, I would go home at the end of the day and sometimes just see a box outside my door and have this weird thought like, wow, you know, what if, what if that were not a safe package? It made no sense whatsoever, but it only, it just gave me a little bit of insight into what life must have been like in Austin for those three weeks. Well, it's a thought you, you don't have to think about until you have to think about it. You know, you don't, you don't ever question an Amazon box or a box on your front steps until something like this happens or until you start reading about something like this. And then without even thinking about it, every box and every delivery you'll get from there on out, you just kind of take a second glance at just to make sure it really does look normal and doesn't seem out of place. And that's that's one of those just intangibles that's hard to to explain. Let's talk about some of the lingering. There's questions. There were things that happened uh, events and developments that happened after that final bomb. Uh, one of them that is interesting that we didn't get into in the show a lot, and I know you covered at KVU when you were there, was this labeling of of Mark Condon as a domestic terrorist. And they're actually it's actually a legal definition. Is that right? That was one of the most asked questions as all of this was happening, especially after his name had been released. You know, why are they not calling him a terrorist? Why has no one called him a terrorist? Why isn't the president? Why isn't the police chief? Why aren't the FBI? Why aren't the news outlets calling him a terrorist? He's clearly a terrorist. And what we realized was there are, you know, depending on which source you look at, five to dozens of different definitions of what a terrorist is. We broke it down. If you look in the dictionary, it seems pretty simple because it just says, you know, basically like the use of terror in general. Um, and then you keep going deeper. And if I remember correctly, the ones we did in the story were FBI and then I think like legal U.S. federal code. And uh, those those started getting a little different because the deeper you go and the deep different sources, they start talking about ideology. You know, you know, one of them, I don't remember which exactly, but declared that it had to be premeditated or politically motivated. Uh, so you, you, the more you dove into that, the more it was a little understandable why Chief Manley and others were initially hesitant, because on one hand, I don't think anyone wanted to be the first to say it. I, I think there seemed to be some sort of conversation that they all agreed that he certainly fit the bill, but no one no one had in, in a position of authority said it yet. So there was some some hesitation. And I do think that when you start using that wording, there are certain legal ramifications that come into play. There's certainly different uh, investigative tactics and law enforcement tactics that go into treating a potential terrorist suspect 
Uh, so, so I think there was some hesitancy around why they didn't initially use it. Let, let, let me continue on that front too, and I and I have a little audio here I want to play with um, with with Chief Brian Manley, uh, who was interim Chief Brian Manley, now Chief of Austin Police, uh, talking about the term. As your police chief, I actually agree now that he was a domestic terrorist for what he did to us, but. In that moment, I want you to understand I was so focused on putting a stop to it and making sure we did it in a way that allowed us to handle the suspect or suspects in a court system in the future. I was very focused on specific language. I've now had the opportunity to sit back and understand and absorb all of the impacts that it had on a personal level. And that is why I sit here today, and I am, I, am, I am very comfortable saying that to our community and what he did to us, he was a domestic terrorist. So having worked with, with Chief Manley multiple times on multiple different stories, he's a very thoughtful man. He, he was, you know, before he was uh, interim chief, he would serve as uh, the previous chief's sort of go-between at the uh, public safety forums for the city. And he would sit there and take questions from uh, both the city council members who were there and just the public who came to ask these questions. And he would take such time out of his busy schedule to go through how they do things and, and to try and make sense of how Austin police work to people. And I always appreciated that. And I think in this scenario, it was fairly easy to see how he was trying to give as much information to calm people as often as possible, but didn't want to cause any unnecessary overhyping of the situation at the time. And when it comes to the terrorist thing, I, the way I interpreted that, at least, and this is just my personal opinion, was that he, he, I think, had wanted to call him that for quite a while, but didn't want to get in the legalese of it, was just focused on the investigation. And then after he'd had a couple days to actually get some solid sleep and think it over and, you know, talk to people outside of just Austin police, I think he was like, you know what? Yes, it fits the bill. We're, we're going to go with that. And, and what I've been feeling, I'm going to put words to it now. You got a sense of, of what you're talking about there, the, the thoughtfulness that goes into his responses. And also, as we talked about a lot, just trying to keep the city together during an awful time. Yeah, which was, I, I can't imagine how he was during all of that. The, you know, the fatigue, the, uh, the number of hours that reporters were working, certainly, but all the investigators and Chief Manley, it's astonishing to think they could, you know, say the right thing all the time. There's a press conference, and this became a bit controversial. I don't know if you covered this aspect of things, and we can talk about it a little bit, but let me play some audio uh, as well. But this is uh, when, when Chief Manley referred to the, the bomber after all was said and done, and he'd heard the confes confession tapes. Um, and, and how he talked about him. The outcry of a very uh, challenged young man talking about challenges in his personal life that led him to this point. It's this wording from interim police chief Brian Manley that has a number of people criticizing him tonight. Many very upset Manley described the bomber as a quote challenged man in a press conference Wednesday when they feel the word terrorist should have been used. My comments, again, were meant to summarize what I heard him say and not give credit to what he said, not indicate that I believe what he said, just to try and educate this community on what he said. My opinion is that he created terror in our community by his actions, and he stole lives from our community. There, there was certainly a population, and I'm saying this in the way of I can empathize and totally understand where they were coming from, but there was a, a group of the population who from a from a 
fairly early on was was wondering if there had been some weird treatment of this because of the location of the initial bombings, because the initial victims were both minorities. And I think when the chief came out and said, I've listened to this tape of this man, it sounds like the outcry of a uh, challenged young man. Is that right? I think that one was one of those ones where you saw a thousand different interpretations come out of it. And there were some people who uh, maybe hadn't been reading into different narratives or different questions about race and how the, the situation had been treated, who just thought that was him, you know, reporting on what he'd heard. There was certainly a, a group of the population, though, who'd been very finely attuned to how Austin police had handled the situation from the get-go. Keep in mind that the first two, three bombs, first three bombs were all east of I-35, which historically in Texas, you know, the the racial divide you can still see nowadays because historically they would segregate minority populations to the east parts of cities. I've lived in multiple Texas cities. It was the same in all of them. They They still showed the signs of segregation. So, you know, a lot of money was still having to be moved to those parts of town. There were some older rundown buildings that would have been torn down in other parts of town, but they kind of get around to that. It's it's a big question in that whole state. And when you have two minority victims, three minority victims, two minority deaths in the the community there, people are starting to ask why aren't police why didn't they go a little sooner? Why didn't they raise the awareness they did after that fourth bombing right off the bat? You know, why wasn't there the same level of, of talk? And I remember there was a there was a meeting in East Austin, and I remember reading the reports on this, and, and I didn't cover it directly, but I, I was definitely interested, and it. it happened before my shift. There were, you know, hundreds of people in that community who gathered and were talking about their fears with the Austin police. And there was a woman there who I'd worked with on other stories. Her name was Fatima and uh, she was a, an outspoken advocate for Black Lives Matter and a couple other groups in town. And she was asking a question I think many others asked of, you know, why why is Austin police just apologizing for how they did things? Why aren't they getting it right in the first place? And that was basically addressing, you know, those Chief Manley basically apologized for how he potentially labeled Stephen House as a possible suspect in his own death and issues like that. So throughout this this entire bombing there were questions of of a racial nature was austin police handling this well would they have done things differently if more of these bombings had occurred over in the richer communities west of i-35 and then i think this challenged young man for those people who are already kind of acutely aware of those questions and those possibilities they heard that and they 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 seemed to jump to and talked online a lot about wow he's he's almost being sympathetic or trying to bring sympathy for this this teen who, you know, many of them viewed as a terrorist. So that that was the the bulk of the criticism he got. How dare you sort of show any empathy or sympathy in your wording for this man who just killed, you know, multiple people in this community and put us all through such terror. You wouldn't have said that if it was someone else is sort of the unspoken argument there. Uh, let's move on to the confession tape. The confession tape will continue to be, I think, a big topic of conversation in Austin uh, for a long time and maybe in, in other areas of law enforcement. But he left this tape. I think people feel like still, if they could just hear it, maybe it's something about his voice, not even just what he says specifically, but something was going on there um, in the tape where he, he laid out a lot of information. He starts it off by saying, it's me again. So there was some concern at the beginning that maybe there were other other tapes or not concerned, but maybe there were, there were, there were in fact other clues out there, other evidence. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of conjecture around what that meant. I, you know, there was at one point we, we proved it false, but at one point there was person online claiming to be the bomber. So when we heard that line, there was a lot of talk of, well, maybe we're one of those other things that 
people initially ignored? Was that some other way he was trying to reach out and, and gain notoriety? But I mean, as we've reported, nothing else really has come out other than the snippets that we've heard from the chief and sort of they'll they'll give every once in a while, they'll give sort of like a general idea of, you know, he, he indicates in the, the recording that he knew a bit of what was going on. And I think at one point he indicated that, you know, he regretted uh, going to the FedEx facility because he thought that's what gave him away. So so he shows some level in what we know that he was watching coverage and watching what police were doing and kind of keeping an eye on everything. And, and yeah, I mean, as someone who lived there, much less someone who reported on it, it's haunting knowing that there is a, you know, almost 30 minute recording of the person who did this to the community out there. And, and it's, it, you have to ask yourself the question, you know, do I actually want to hear that? And I think on a morbid level of curiosity, as well as just trying to get a, any semblance of an answer to the question of why this all happened, you want to say, yeah, I wanted, I want to hear this. I want to know what could possibly motivate someone to do something like this. Cause I can't wrap my brain around it, but there's also a part of me that's, that thinks the release of that would, would do some harm. You know, that, that community, I think was incredibly shocked by these acts because it is such a peaceful community and a community of open-hearted kind people who generally get along with each other and go out of their way for each other. And to know that, a member of that community could do something like this. I, I think it has the potential to do harm because because that's going to make everyone start questioning how how did was it something we did? Was it something in this community? Was it something his neighborhood did? His church? His organizations growing up? You know where did it come from? And everyone's going to start analyzing all of that. They already have done that to some degree, but I would just imagine that hearing it from his mouth and you know his own reasonings is is going to only worsen those things, in my opinion. Yeah, and investigators also bring up the whole side of the fact that he sort of laid out how he went about making his devices, and if anyone were to sort of gain any knowledge or skills at doing that in a, in another part of the country, that there there would just be you know be it'd be awful that there'd be no point in releasing that. So we we almost did a story uh, about a week after all of this had gone down, about a week after he he was killed, that we were going to actually walk through and go online and we talked to the police to get approval so they wouldn't come investigate us but say hey we're gonna we're gonna see if it's actually possible just to find this information online because that's the the sort of uh narrative that's been going around is you know it's not that difficult to find this stuff and we didn't run that story we didn't even finish that story because what we found 100 percent verified for us that it was true but very quickly we were like this is frightening and and to the point where it would be potentially causing harm for us to share any of this um, you know, you don't want to propagate out to the public that you can go to these simple pages and find this. So we weren't going to list anything. And we realized by diluting it that much, we, all we could really do is confirm, yes, what you've heard is true. It's it's unfortunately fairly easy if you're looking for stuff like this to find it out there. But that was very frightening in and of itself. Uh, let's let's move on with the confession tapes, Jason. Uh, you know, he calls himself a psychopath. And then he also says, by the end that if he felt police were closing in on him that he would actually blow himself up in a McDonald's. Uh, we didn't we didn't include that in the in the six episodes. We had a lot of information to include. But you get the sense that things were not going to end peacefully and, right. and that was his plan. Yeah, and uh, if I remember correctly, they had uh, one of the officials mentioned that he'd, he'd listed a couple other possible targets as well in there. So it, it sounds like it wasn't going to 
necessarily have ended anytime soon if they hadn't caught him. Everyone was so tired. It's amazing to think about the fatigue involved and just being able to make clear decisions as investigators, really big decisions, decisions like whether you go in at night and raid the bomber's house, uh, whether you put his photo out there. Those were a few of the big choices and decisions they had to make. It just, it's it's amazing to think of this team of investigators uh, working on no sleep and what that is like. I mean, if you've ever worked a full day and then maybe worked, you know, another six hours past your regular full day, you, you have some idea of what it feels like, but this was weeks on end. Yeah, I, I, you know, we work in tandem a lot with law enforcement in different arrangements. And I think we we put an hour similar, but it's just a whole different world. And, and it's hard to wrap our minds around, even as reporters who might be out there, you know, 90 percent of the same amount of time. We're doing vastly different things. We're sitting there talking to community members and, and waiting and trying not to bug law enforcement, but waiting on them to, to give us information. Meanwhile, they're doing all the work. I mean, they're they're they've got so many different paths and so many different possibilities that they have to be putting in. The the one thing I think I can sort of give them some credit on is you didn't you didn't get a sense that they were fatigued in the sense that they were tired. You you got a sense that they were they were definitely ready to be done with this and in a way that they wanted to be over. They wanted to be able to tell the community it was safe again. But whether it was adrenaline or you know just a little bit of fear for their family and their community and and hope to to end this soon maybe it was some combo of that and many many other things and their their you know whatever inspired them to get into service in the first place really must come active in times like this those men and women out there were were fantastic i mean they were they were heroes in every way possible but they would go up out of their way to to just talk to reporters to talk to the community members with as little information as they had but just trying to reassure them that, you know, they weren't crazy, the fears they were feeling, they weren't alone, and that everybody who could do something about it in that town was working on it. In one of your pieces, uh, you looked into various aspects of what might be true or false because there was so much conjecture going on out there. Uh, there was a website that you talked about where a lot of people were making uh, guesses, it sounds like, are actually just coming up with fake information about Mark Condit's political leanings and his background. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, mylife.com. It's, uh, it's a site that's basically one of those, if you ever search someone's name online and it'll show, you know, here's, this site has a background information on 22 of that person and their their phone data, etc. It's one of those sites, the, the issue with it is that people can go in there and edit user data, so it almost has a Wikipedia-esque aspect to it. So people would start posting these mylife.com uh, screenshots where it would say Mark Condit was a Republican Christian. And then there'd be another one that said, no, he's a liberal, he's a registered Democrat, and he's atheist. And then where there, it, it just got wild to the point where I think there was one that said he was a Scientologist and he had no political affiliations and his age was changing on him. It was at the at the end of the day it was people just going in and changing this and then screen capping it and sending it out the problem is not everyone was in on this kind of quote troll joke that people could change this so other people were seeing this on social media and saying oh my gosh here's proof that he was a registered republican you know and they're sharing that and it just starts to kind of build narratives on whatever side you you pertain to so yeah we we did as quickly as possible a story saying don't put any weight behind those these are fake but unfortunately and it's truly unfortunate in situations like this, there are so many internet trolls that just want to sort of cause chaos online. So that was just one example. You had photos that 
sort of looked like him, but also sort of looked like an entirely different guy and turned out to be an entirely different guy that people were sharing. Right, and that was like a, he was like a, a YouTube guy. The, the, yeah. The, they got sort of caught up in this whole thing. It wasn't even the the actual Mark Condit. Yeah, his name's Sam Hyde. I've, I've done it so many times now because there's this weird troll community online that when there's a big breaking national story, they like to just kind of feed trolls and see if they can get people to fall for their their games. So that same photo of him popped up People claiming he was Mark Condit. People have claimed he was the shooter in Parkland. People claimed he was the shooter in the Santa Fe high school shooting in, in Houston. And every time we've kind of come in and been like, no, there's a YouTube personality that somehow is the victim of this this trolling online. But uh, but it's just it is it does bring up a sad part of the the whole narrative there. It's like as all this is going on and there's a community genuinely mourning and genuinely afraid, there's other people online who are just trying to have fun and uh you know, I'm glad we're able to go in there and kind of shut some of that down and, and clear the air, but it's frustrating that it happens in the first place. Thanks to all that you do and everything uh, on the podcast, Jason. It's a it's an amazing story. It's a, it's a terrible story, but it's also, at the end of the day, one that I think uh, Austin police can feel really good about, the fact that this was going on, and in essence, they wrapped it up in under three, three weeks. Could have gone on a lot longer. They really deserve, you know, just heaps and endless amounts of praise for their work. They they did make a few mistakes along the way, but I give them credit for acknowledging those and for for going above and beyond to try and correct any of those and and acknowledge that we're 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 in the middle of something we've never been through before, but we're here for you and to protect you, and we're going to do everything in our power to do that. I, I definitely felt, while I did feel real fear, and while it was weird to go home after work and kind of, you know put on my my resident of Austin glasses after work I I did feel like police were there and that I wasn't uh, unsafe at any point you know I, I was worried and I was definitely double checking things I hadn't before but I never really felt like I myself was going to be in imminent danger all right Jason thanks again I'm now going to turn to the news director at KVU in Austin Texas Tim Ryan Tim you've been the news director at KVU for almost two years now right a little less than two years I started in July of 2017. Can you describe from sort of a, a leader and as as from, you know, from the first bomb to the very end of, uh, of how this all wrapped up as best as you can, what it was like taking a team of people through this, knowing that there was reporting that needed to be done, but also issues of safety? I mean, a lot of things were going on, right? Yes, we had to consider many different variables throughout the story um, that made it, in my experience, a unique story that I hadn't really encountered anything like it before. But in the beginning, on March 2nd, this seemed isolated. Uh, the explosion that killed Stephen House um, was not seen at that time as any kind of pattern. Uh, the, obviously, police were investigating it. And we covered it that day. We followed up on it a couple of days later. We were monitoring it. Um, but it was not getting daily coverage, and it wasn't seen as something extraordinary until 10 days later. So on March 12th, the second and third explosions, the explosion that killed Draylon Mason and the explosion that wounded Hope Herrera, um, was the turning point in the story when we then realized that someone was out there setting packages uh, at homes in an effort to hurt people and kill them, and it was working. And um, from that moment, from the day of the 12th until the 21st, it was clearly a different kind of story and a very difficult story every day. And I say that in spite of the fact that 
whatever we were going through in terms of our coverage and our decisions and the impact that it was having on us um, obviously paled in comparison to what the families who were directly affected by this were experiencing, the House family and the Mason family and the Herrera family. And we were doing our best to be sensitive while still covering all of those angles uh, as as we went along. You know, throughout the whole couple of weeks there, uh, and I've talked to a few of your reporters uh, who have made this point, at least one or two, who have said it was a fine line to walk where you were letting people know how scary the situation was, but also not wanting to panic the community. You know, I think we definitely um, wanted to avoid speculation. Um, we wanted to make sure that any information that we did report was accurate. These stories aren't, uh, you know, easy to cover. Um, there, there were people who were uh, very accessible and and spoke frequently um, in law enforcement. Um, and then there were other angles of the story that were sort of harder to get at, and we had to work hard at that. And so we had to have a lot of people working on it, um, and and stay coordinated. And it, it's very difficult. I also don't want to suggest that um, it was perfectly smooth um, because these things are chaotic. Uh, and and I I certainly think back to, uh, you know, all of the choices that I made during this period and, and would have made some different choices um, with some more time to think about them and, and a clearer mind. Um, but of course, in that in those moments, um, that that isn't possible because there it's sort of chaos. Um, and and we were also very tired, um, especially after that. La the last four day stretch started on Sunday night. Um, and so there was an event Sunday night. There was an event, you know, Monday night going into Tuesday in the middle of the night. Um, there was the false alarm on Tuesday night. Uh, and then, of course, early Wednesday morning was the end of it. And by that point, um, there were quite a number of members of our team who had put in just super, super long days working the story. Um, and and those are the times where, uh, you know, it, it gets hard to think straight. And, and I vividly remember how difficult that was. On the other side of this now, we're, we're a year later. What do you think about as you look back upon what's happened, the fact that there's no real motive obviously bothers I think almost everyone. What sort of lingering thoughts do you have? It made me think back to Columbine, um, which I covered in 1999. And I remember at the time I had young children. And I remember thinking how hard it was to understand that event and what produced that event and why children could grow up um, to do things like that at, that really defied an explanation. And I think, in fact, in spite of all of the volumes that have been written about Columbine and all of the studies, um, I'm not really sure we have a better answer about that than we do about this. Uh, and it is, it's frustrating to not, under, not be able to understand it. Uh, but in both cases, it, it's just uh, there's something in human nature uh, that periodically produces uh, events like this that that cannot be explained and will never be able to be explained, um, even though uh, we really want to. Um, I, I, even though my bias is is strongly in favor of, of the release of information, um, I understand law enforcement's position on the question of the tape that the bomber made in in his car. Um, and, and why that could potentially be an issue, even though 
I, I would I would continue, you know, to argue for its release so that there could be some uh, effort, you know, wider effort at understanding uh, what happened and why it happened. But I, I, I just don't think we ever will. And, and it's upsetting. Um, it's an upsetting thought. It was an upsetting story to cover. I, I would emphasize that, um, you know, when you, the with respect to the question of sort of how our team was operating um, at the same time that we were all doing our jobs and trying to report a story carefully and and be uh, you know vigorous news gatherers and and do all the things that journalists are supposed to do, um, we also would periodically look at each other and go, what what is this and and why is this happening? Um, and of course, uh, you know, at the end. Um, in spite of the difficulties and the challenges associated with covering the story, um, it isn't lost on me that the people who really have obviously suffered the most um, during that period and since that period are the families who've lost their loved ones, um, including the family of the bomber, honestly, um, who lost their son. Uh, and 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 just like the rest of the world don't understand uh, why why it happened uh, or what they could have done or what the world could have done um, to have uh, affected a different outcome. And, and that's the thing that um, I think would bother anybody who thinks about this case is, is you, you obviously like to learn from these things so that we can prevent them. Um, yet uh, at the end of the line, uh, it, it seems like that might be impossible. And, and that's a hard thing to accept. I hope that it'll, I'll look back on my career and think that that's, this is the, the worst story that I've ever covered um, and, and that it's, it, it might be, uh, you know, the last one that even compares to it. All right, Tim Ryan, news director at KVU in Austin, Texas. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for talking to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Will. And thanks to all of you for listening and subscribing and leaving your reviews and comments. My thanks to Jason Puckett for bringing his voice and personal experience to the podcast. Tim Ryan and, of course, KVU reporters, Tony Plahetsky, Erica Proffer, and Jay Wallace, and the many others at KVU in Austin who covered the Austin bombings in March of 2018. Stay tuned for more podcasts coming soon from Vault Studios.